Worship team, lead us in that one more time with no music, just the chorus. Can we do that this morning? It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise. We pour out our praise. It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise to you only. Give God a shout of praise. Let's join in prayer together. Heavenly Father, we are here this morning to seek you. God, I pray that what I prayed was not just a lie. I pray that we really are here this morning to seek you. And God, if we're here for another reason, I, I'm, I'm glad we're here. But I pray, God, that you would get a hold of our hearts. And that our deepest desire would be to know more of you. And God, if we feel like we know you good enough already excuse us for our pride because God we can spend all of eternity and you are so great Lord that we would never know every facet of your being God I pray you would place within us this morning a hunger to know more about you to understand you to have your mind and to have your heart God, maybe somebody's here this morning just checking this church thing out. And Lord, we're, we're so glad that they're here. And we pray that they would feel welcome. But we don't necessarily pray that they would feel comfortable if you're wanting to stir things up in their lives. And God, those of us who know you and have been walking with you and those of us who are in church every Sunday morning, God, I... I pray you would stir something up within us this morning as well, too. God, we're here to listen to you. We're here to hear your voice. I pray, God, you would protect these people from the words of Brent. Because, God, if they're my words, they are going to be of no good. But, Lord, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would speak today and you would speak to our hearts, God. We want to have your heart. We want to look like more like Jesus by the time we leave this place. So God, do that this morning, we pray. And God, if there are distractions today, I pray that we could put them aside. And God, if there are worries and concerns, I pray that you would lift those from us, God, for this time so that we might concentrate on you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his blood. Thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you that he did not stay dead, but he rose again victorious. Thank you that through your Holy Spirit, he is present here. 
And God, as Jesus passes by this morning, Lord, I pray that if we need it, we would just reach out and touch the hem of his garment and find that healing that we need, that assurance that we need, that power that we need, God. Let it be done. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And Rushwood said together, Amen. You may be seated this morning. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 17 tells us that he, and that means Jesus, he came and he preached peace to those of us who were far away. And he came and preached peace to those who were near. And uh, we've been talking in this series about walls coming down. We've been talking a lot about the Jew and Gentile dynamic that was in the early church and how God was looking to make one out of his, his church, and uh, you know, that can still be a problem today. This unity is one of the biggest problems in churches and among churches, and I believe God's heart is that his people would be united, just as Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer when he asked that we would become one like he was one with the Father, uh, in a very beautiful and mysterious union that we would be made one. And so I love the song we've been singing to open everything up during this series, it basically says that, make us one. Lord, make us one. Um, but this, the verse that I just quoted to you from Ephesians chapter 2 puts me in mind of one of the greatest stories that's told in all of Scripture. And uh, it comes from Luke chapter 15. And to set it up and give you a little background on Luke chapter 15, Jesus is, his ministry is expanding. He is reaching new people. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law come and they say, Jesus, you meet and you eat and you welcome sinners and you welcome tax collectors. And so they're accusing Jesus of basically being unrighteous because of the people that he is willing to associate with. And so Jesus, as oftentimes he does, gives them some parables to help them understand where they're in error. And uh, he gives three parables in Luke chapter 15. One is about a lost sheep. And it's about the shepherd, the good shepherd that goes and finds the lost sheep. The one that's lost out of a hundred and brings that sheep back. And the other uh, story, the next story in that section is about a lost coin. About a woman who lost a valuable coin and she basically cleaned out the whole house until she found that coin and until it was safe and sound. But probably the greatest parable in Luke chapter 15 is one that's sometimes known as the parable of the prodigal son, or sometimes it's known as the parable of the lost son. And this morning I wanted to to remind you of that parable. You've probably heard it before, but man, it's so beautiful, it's so powerful. Even in literature, they say that it's probably the greatest short story ever put together, the greatest short story ever told. And it goes a little something like this. There was a man who had two sons. And the younger son came to his father and said, Father, I want you to give me what is rightfully mine. I want you to go ahead and give me my my inheritance. Which, by the way, was tantamount to saying, Dad, I would be better off if you were dead. I would be better off if you were out of the picture and I could get the money and the lands and everything that's coming to me. I would rather have this inheritance. Father, I would rather have some stuff than to have a relationship with you. And so I'm sure the father is deeply wounded, but the father gives his son what he asked for. And he gives him his share of the inheritance. 
And this younger son takes this inheritance, and the Bible tells us he moves to a far-off land. Wants nothing to do with the family farm, wants nothing to do with dad anymore, the family. He wants to get as far away from the family as he can, as far away from his raising as he can. And so he moves to this far-off land. And the Bible tells us there that he squandered his inheritance in riotous living, in unrighteous living. And uh, the Bible doesn't give us all the details, but we can kind of picture maybe what this looked like. He goes to this far off land and he's loaded. He's wealthy. His dad had amassed a, a fortune over the years by the standards of his, his country. And, and so the inheritance was a lot. And so at first, this son is living large in this foreign country. And he, he's throwing parties every day. And, and, uh, and he's got all these friends because when you got a lot of money, you got a lot of friends and all these People come around and, hell, he's just the best guy in the world. And uh, there's women involved because he had a lot of money. And if they weren't there at a particular time, they could be bought if need be. And so it's just one big continuous party for a long time because dad had given him a whole lot. His father had given him a whole lot. But eventually, as it always does, the money starts to run out. And all of a sudden he has to cut back on the partying and cut back on the feasting and, and cut back on, on everything that was happening and it starts to lessen and then all of a sudden he gets to a point where the bank account has dried up and there's no more money to, to be spent on that sort of thing. And then eventually he gets to the point where not only is he try, not able to throw the party but he becomes in need. And so probably for a while, the Bible doesn't give us all this, but we can kind of speculate that uh, he probably got some odd jobs around and tried to make ends meet that way and too proud to go back to dad, too proud to say that he had messed up. And so he stays in this country and does what he can for a while, but then disaster hits in the form of a famine. A famine hits the land and now there are no more odd jobs. There is very little work out there. And here is a foreign boy in a foreign land uh, away from his family, away from the, his way of worship, away from everything else. So he's in this foreign land, the famine has hit, and all of a sudden hunger starts to set in. No longer is it not party time anymore. Party time has long since passed. Survival mode has now kicked in, and the young man says, you know, I, I need a job. And he finally runs up on a guy who owns pigs, owns swine. And uh, in the Jewish culture, and we're not told exactly in this story that this is a Jewish family, but we can imagine Jesus being from a Jewish context. This was probably a Jewish family. In the Jewish culture, hogs, pigs, swine are considered unclean. You don't deal with them. Yeah, that's something that, that, that is not something kosher for a good Jewish young man to do. But not only does he take this job because he's desperate, but he's there on this farm tending to these pigs, and he is so hungry because the first paycheck hasn't come in yet. And he's so hungry that as he's watching these pigs, and as they're being fed uh, watermelon rinds, maybe, and, and corn cobs, and just all sorts of other stuff that we wouldn't even want to get into, smells and just terrible, he's so hungry that as he watches this, he longs to be able to eat the slop that the pigs are being given. I mean, how far have you fallen that it's against your religion and it's just against human nature to want to eat that nastiness that these pigs are eating? But he is sitting there and he's thinking, you know what, I, I would like to just fill my stomach with this stuff that these pigs are eating. And then he comes to his senses. They're in the pigsty. You ever been in the pigsty? 
comes to his senses in the pigsty and he thinks, you know what, in my father's house, he starts to think about the kitchen back home. He thinks, man, dad always provided for everybody in the household. He provided for the family. He even provided for the servants. Those that were household servants in the father's house, they were well fed. He was a generous man. He was a good man. He took care of everybody associated with the family farm there. This young man begins to think back, here I am. I'm sitting among the pigs. I'm sitting among this foulness and this stink, and I'm so hungry that I want to eat this. And back home, the servants are being fed a good meal. And he says, I know what I'll do. I'm in such dire straits, I know what I'll do. I'm going to get up and I'm going to go back to dad. And I'm going to tell him, look, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I messed up. I took my inheritance, dad. I acted terribly toward you. I blew it, dad. I'm no longer to be worthy worthy to be called your son. Dad, make me one of your servants. Because even your servants are well fed. Even those who just hang out in the, in the household and work for you, they're well taken care of. Dad, make me one of your servants. And that, that's his mindset. I'm going to get up and I'm going to go back home. Which looks a lot like repentance. And now I want our point of view to shift from the son's point of view to the father's point of view. And we're not exactly told this, but we can infer from the scripture that this father loved his son so much. That every day, he's been watching up the road. Every day since his son has been gone, and it might have been months, it might have been years, we don't know, but every day since his son had been gone, dad kept watching up the road about the time that the, the field workers would get off, and about the time for, for family meal together in the, in the evening, he was watching and he was just hoping. Dad was hoping that one day as he watched up the road at closing time for the family farm, he would see the figure of his son come up the road. And day after day, son doesn't come back. Day after day, father has to wonder what's going on. What, what, what's up with my son? Is he okay? Is he alive? Is he all right? But he's in the far off country and dad doesn't know. But on this particular day, dad looks up the road. And it's starting, starting to get a little bit dark. Starting to get toward evening time. And just over the hill... He sees a figure appear. And in dad's heart, he dares to hope. He dares to, to wonder if, if that figure could possibly be his lost son. And the figure gets a little bit closer as he continues toward the house. And he's skinny, but he, he, he walks like the father's son. Has that little bit of a lilt as he walks. And, and dad starts to recognize that. And he's the right height. And, and, and as he gets closer, dad finally realizes this must be my son. And he does something that good Jewish men don't do. It was undignified for them to do this. But he leaves the front porch or the front area of the house and he runs up the road. The Bible says, while this young man was still a good ways off, that the father left and ran to him. Ran to him. And you know what the son has to be wondering. Is dad coming and he's angry and he's going to tell me, look, you already had your inheritance. You've already wasted everything. You've already uh, hurt the family name. Get out of here. Now, you know, I don't want to have anything else to do with you. Is that what dad is going to do? But that's not what dad does. The Bible says he, he hugs him. He embraces him. And it says he starts to kiss him. And, and, and the word there in Luke chapter 15 doesn't mean like he kissed him on the cheek one time. This means like he passionately, almost like you have a little child, 
little boy and you love him that much and almost like a father just kissing all over the head and all over the face of this little boy. This is what he does to his grown son. The Bible, there's one translation that says he could not stop kissing him. And the father cries out to the servants and he says, go get a robe and put it on his shoulders and go get a ring. And it was probably the family ring with the family crest where we can speculate on that. Go get a ring and and put it on his finger. And look, my son has bare feet and my son should not have bare feet because he's my heir. He's my son. Go get some shoes and put them on his feet. And he says, go, and you know, the calf that we've been saving, that calf that we've been holding back, and we've been letting it get fat and fattening it up, go kill that calf and barbecue that thing, because we're about to have a party like nobody has ever seen. And he brings the son in, and the Bible tells us there that they started to celebrate because the son that was lost has now been found. The son that was for all purposes dead is now alive. This story reveals to us the Father's heart. This story, in the story, the the Father is the image of God. He's a symbol of God. He stands in for the heart of God the Father. And we can pick it up actually from earlier in the chapter that when a sinner comes home, this is how heaven rejoices. When a sinner leaves their sinful ways, they repent, they get up out of the pigsty, and they come back home. This is how there's celebration among the angels in the presence of God when this lost sinner comes home. And I don't know if you're here today, and maybe you have been in the far-off country. We've all done it from time to time. It's kind of part of mankind's nature. It's part of our fallen sinful nature that our Father has been so good to us and has given us so much, but we want to act like He's not even alive. And we want to go off in the far off country and we want to do our own thing and make our own way and live it up and, and get what we think is the very best part of this life. And I don't know what that might look like for you. I don't know, you know, for a lot of people it may be drugs. For a lot of people it may be drink. For a lot of people it may be some sort of aberrant sexual activity or, you know, or, or it might be trying to find your worth in riches or I don't know. But if you're here this morning and you've gone to the far off country, if you've left the father's house and you've gone off to the far off country to do your own thing, and all of a sudden you've come and you've woken up, you've awakened to the fact that you're in the pigsty and that you missed the father's house because it was good there, I can tell you the good news is if you'll get up out of the pigsty and if you'll head back home, God the father will meet you halfway. He will run to you. He will embrace you. He will kiss you. He will put a ring on your finger. He'll put a robe on your shoulders. He'll put shoes on your feet. And he won't chastise you or beat you up. He'll say, my child that was lost has now come home. And that is the heart of God the Father toward you. And if you're here this morning and you're lost in sin and and you you maybe knew the Lord at one time or maybe you grew up in church or whatever that might look like and you've gone off to the far country, the good news is if you'll get up and head back, he'll be there waiting for you. And he's going to love you and he's going to hug you and he's going to kiss you and he's going to bring you in to the family one more time. And that is the, the peace that Jesus preached to those who were far off. Those who are far off can be near. All they have to do is turn around and come home. And I heard, I heard very recently uh, an Islamic uh, fellow debating a Christian man, and he said, he said, why did Jesus have to pay for sins? He said, why couldn't it just have been, you know, just like the Father in, in Luke chapter 15? 
just forgiveness. There has to be no payment for sins. He said in that story, no, there was there was no sacrifice for sins. It was just forgiveness. This is what the Islamic experts said. He hadn't read the story very well. In that story, the fatted calf died so the celebration could take place. And a lot of times in Scripture, a calf is a symbol of Jesus Christ, a sacrifice that is made on behalf of the sins of the world. And so Jesus actually, through his blood, preached peace to those that are far off. If you're far off this morning, the good news is you can come home. The good news is you can come into the Father and you say, well, I didn't grow up a Christian. Or, or I've never really had a relationship with God. It's okay. Today can be that day. All you have to do is start down that road of repentance, turning away from your sin and believing in the Father's goodness and believing in the sacrifice of the Son. And so that's how Jesus preached peace to those who are far away. And if you're far away today, you need to come home. If you're far away today, you need to head toward the Father's house and you will never regret it. It'll be the best thing that you've ever done in your life. The thing about the story in Luke chapter 15 is this, though. There's a second part to it. And it doesn't get nearly as much press. It doesn't get nearly as much publicity because it doesn't have the happy ending. In fact, it ends kind of open-ended. Because, you see, there really was not just one son lost in the story, but there were two. The other son lost in the story is the older brother. And the story continues on that... As the celebration is going and they're celebrating and they're worshiping God for the return, safe return of this son. And they're just having a great time. The older brother gets off of work. He's been out working in the fields for dad. He's been out dutifully working for the family. The older brother gets off of work and I imagine he takes the same road home as his younger brother just did. He gets a little distance from the house and he hears the sound of celebration and he hears the sound of a a party going on. And he says to some of the servants, what's going on here? Why is there a party going on? And he says, your younger brother, the one that was lost, has now been found. He's come back home and your dad's killed the fatted calf and they're making a big celebration because your brother has returned. And sadly enough, the older brother doesn't join in the celebration. Angels in heaven joining in the celebration. God the Father joining in the celebration. Everybody joining in the celebration. Not this brother. This brother instead is angry because the celebration is going on. And he approaches dad. And he says, Father, all these years I've served you. All my life, dad, I have served you. I have worked for you. And never once, dad, you never killed the fatted calf for me. You never made a sacrifice for me. You never, you never killed an animal and, and threw a big party for me and my friends so that we could have fun together. And I've been here the whole time, Dad, and you never did that for me. And the father with his tender heart and his heart of love says one more time, Son, all that I have is yours. That may be one of the most heartbreaking verses or sections of Scripture in the entire Bible. All that I have is yours. Son, it's all at your disposal. Son, you're my only remaining heir. In fact, in in Jewish tradition, the first son, the oldest son, would have been a double heir. He would have had a double portion of the inheritance. All I have is yours, son. Your other brother took his inheritance and he wasted it. So everything that I have left is at your disposal. It's been right there for you. He said, but this brother that was lost has now been found and we had to celebrate. We had to celebrate his return. 
And church, I think one of the scariest things is that this young man, this older brother, was in the father's house the whole time. And he was just as lost, maybe more lost, because he did not have the heart of the father. The heart of the father celebrates when lost sinners come home. The the heart of the father says, oh, he, he doesn't hold everything against them. He forgives them and he loves them and he kisses them and he holds them. He puts rings on their finger and, and a robe on their back and shoes on their feet. That's the heart of the father. And instead, this young man was angry that his brother had come, was, had come home. He was angry because he said, I've been here the whole time doing what's right, dad. And you never did that for me. He was in the father's house, but he had missed the father's heart. And church, I've seen it. Church, I'm afraid, I, I, I worry that in the American church today, we have a lot of people who are in the Father's house who do not have the Father's heart. I mentioned this last week. They say that in America, we have about 70% of Americans who say that they are Christians. It's a lie. I'll tell you how I know it's a lie. If 70% of Americans truly were Christians, and that's down from 80% where it used to be. But if 70% of Americans truly were Christians, this place would look a whole lot different than it does. This society, this culture, we're so mad at the 30%. They're ruining everything. Bunch of liberals. Bunch of, them, that bunch up in Washington, and, you know, just whatever. We're blaming that Hollywood. Holly, oh, they're just terrible, you know, and these, these sports stars, they don't have any morals. And according to some in the NBA, they're all smoking pot. And, you know, they're just terrible. And we look at the 30% and we say, that's what's ruining the country. But if 70% of this nation really was Christian, if 70% of this nation really did live for God, then that 30% would be shrinking every day. More people would be won into the kingdom. And their influence would be hardly anything. Our nation, this culture, this society is the report card of the church. How are we doing, church? I know, I know, and it breaks my heart, but there are people all over this nation this morning who are coming into, if we want to call it the Father's house, they're coming into church, but they do not have the Father's heart. And I, I'm afraid that one of the big problems is we have taught for so long just put your belief in Jesus Christ. Just put your belief in Him, put your faith in Him, and He'll save you, and then everything's okay from that point on. You can come to the altar, and you can pray, and you can get baptized, and then it'll be clear sailing from then on. But I don't think we've really explained what faith and belief is. I believe that there is a planet out there called Mars. I know in my mind, I've seen pictures of it, I've read books about it, I know that it's out there. I know that it exists. It means nothing to my life during a normal day. Once in a while, I might see it in the night sky and say, oh man, that, that's pretty, that planet's up there. And then I go right on back to my business again. It means nothing to me. That's the kind of belief I think that a lot of people in the Father's house have in the Father through the Son. It's just out there. It just exists. Yeah, it's just a fact, but it means nothing to their daily lives. It means nothing in how they live. You say, Brent, you're saying a lot of stuff here. Can you prove any of it? Well, look at your average Christian in America and look at your average non-Christian, maybe atheist or agnostic in America. Tell me, church, that there's a lot of difference in the lifestyle. Because I think if you do, you'll be lying to me.
your average Christian lives very close, very much like your average person who does not know the Lord. There does not seem to be a whole lot of difference in the way they live. There does not seem to be a whole, a whole lot of difference in the way they act. I mean, there, it's been a while back, but a while back there, there was a movie coming out, Beauty and the Beast, if you guys remember that. And I preached about it because the director said, we're going to put a deliciously homosexual moment in this movie. And I got up and I said, you know what? Christians ought not have anything to do with that. If this dude is saying, here's what we're doing. We're sowing seeds in here that go against what the Word of God teaches. And we're going to get you to pay to bring your family to this thing and watch this thing uh, so that we can start to brainwash your kids. And I don't know who's seen that movie and who hasn't. So if you did, they always have to deal with the Lord on that one. But man, I caught all kinds of junk in the church, this church right here, and in the community because I said that. You know why that caused me so much flack? And we had people, I'm convinced, they actually left the church because I said that. And I had other pastors come and talk to me and say, man, you really shouldn't be preaching like that. You're, you're not going to have as many people come to your church anymore since you're preaching like that. You know why people had a problem with that? Because they didn't really love God the way they needed to. That's really the truth of the matter. They really did not love God. Because, because I love God and because I'm trying to follow Him. And look, I'm not saying I'm perfect. Please understand. I'm not saying I'm perfect or I'm the model or anything like that. But because I love Him, I don't want to do anything that displeases Him. I don't want to do anything that hurts my family. I don't want to hurt, do anything that would take my kids away from loving and serving Him. And so if I have to give up watching a movie, what is that? That's nothing in the scheme of eternity. I don't have to do that. But people were so deeply offended. But that's just one example that I could throw out there to you. So deeply offended. Church, I'm afraid we're in the Father's house and we don't have the Father's heart. Because the Father's heart is that we, that we do what's right. The Father's heart is that we love people. And we don't want to see them hurt. And we don't want to see them get into sin. Church, I'm afraid, I'm really afraid that we are a lot like the older brother many times. I mean, let's be honest. Think about your life. Think about your life from this Sunday to next Sunday. And I'm glad you're here because a lot of Christians, we can't even get them in church anymore. So I'm, I'm, I know I'm in a sense I'm preaching to the choir here this morning. But church, this morning, from this morning till next Sunday morning, Will your life look markedly different than your friends and co-workers and those around you who don't know Jesus Christ? Will there be an example of a difference? Will you be in God's Word, loving His Word, wanting to learn more from His Word, wanting to be, be challenged by this Word so that you can be changed and you can look more like Jesus Christ? Will you be praying? Will that be part of your daily life? I was told Wednesday night... I, I, I was told Wednesday night by Derek Britt, who's over our life groups, he said, well, we did a prayer thing tonight, so we had about half the attendance we normally do in life groups. Say amen or ouch, whichever one fits, you know? If you really love God, if you really have a passion for Him, you're going to want to talk to Him. You're going to want to take opportunities to talk to Him. You know, we're doing this thing on May 3rd, this National Day of Prayer thing, and I know it's a Thursday night, so it's an odd night and everything, but... The challenge was put out there that churches across America would pray over these seven things and would come together. And so on a Thursday night 
at 7 o'clock, we're going to do, on May 3rd, we're going to do a thing where we come in here and we pray together for this nation. I wonder how many of you will show up. Now, I'm just being honest with you this morning. If you have a conflict that's a conflict you can't get out of, I know we planned this pretty quickly and everything. I understand that. But if it's just like, oh, all they're doing is prayer, I think I'll stay home. That's a bad reflection of your heart. If you really love God, you want to pray. If you really love God, you want to seek Him. If you really really love God, you want to be in conversation with Him. There's no way I could be married to my wife and say, oh, man, I love my wife. I don't want to spend no time with her, but I love her. She's going to figure that one out sooner or later, that there's a problem there. It's the same thing with God. The younger brother, what's scary in this story is, I think the younger brother was close to the father than the older brother. Even though he was in the far-off country, he was willing to repent when he finally reached that point. Repent, come back, confess his sin, if you will, that he was not worthy to be a son of the Father anymore, and and all of a sudden he's back into the Father's good standing. But we're left in this story, and the one that was there in the Father's house all along, we don't know what he did. Jesus told it that way for a reason. He wanted to leave some tension there. He wanted to leave some tension there so that when we read it, we think about, am I in the Father's house, but I don't have the Father's heart? I remember several years ago in this church, it's when I had just come back as pastor and we had a thing that we had to handle very early on i I got like a two-month honeymoon here you know they say as a as a minister that you should have six months to a year where everybody kind of likes you because you're new i got like two months because we had to deal with an issue here that was a tough issue and i took the unpopular choice which was the right choice because sometimes the right thing is unpopular And I took the unpopular choice and we ended up having about 40 people leave the church because I did the right thing. And of course, then I got blamed for doing the right thing. And I remember, though, at the same time, God was blessing us. We had about 40 people leave the church, but I think we had like 80 come in. I mean, we had all sorts of new people coming in the church and becoming part of the church. And I remember talking to one of this guy, one of the guys who'd been here for a while. And he said, Brent, we have so many people leaving the church. Oh my goodness, we have so many, it's just, this is just terrible. So many people are leaving the church. I said, yeah, but we've had like twice as many come in as the ones that went out. And he said to me, I'll never forget this as long as I live. He said, yeah, but the quality of people that left is higher than the quality of people who came in. I wanted to punch him in the throat in Jesus' name. Because I thought, how dare you look at a human being that Jesus Christ died for and say they're not quality? How dare you have that sort of attitude? What are you judging on? And I love that man to this day, but in that situation, he did not have the Father's heart. Because if I read my Bible right, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to salvation through a knowledge of the truth. That means the poor person. That means the, the dirty person. That means the, the, the person who, who struggles with addictions. That means everybody. Jesus died for them and the Father's heart is, come on in, come back to the Father's house. I'll love you, I'll clean you up, and we're going to celebrate that you're here. That's the Father's ha- heart. You can be in the Father's house and not have the Father's heart. And so my prayer this morning, and look, church, I'm talking to me as well. I have to think about this sometimes. Do I have the heart of the Father? Do I love people the way that I should? 
I say every week, I love you guys and there's nothing you can do about it. Is that really true? Or can you do something that ticks me off? And I understand God's a God of wrath and I understand that He can get angry. But at the same time, He's always willing to take back the repentant sinner. He's always willing to love us through it. He's always willing to forget what's happened and move forward if we'll repent and if we will turn to Him. And so I have to ask myself, as the pastor of this church, do I have that heart? The easiest test is the one that Jesus gave. If you're wondering, do you have the Father's heart or not? The easiest test is the one that Jesus gave. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And the second one is like unto it. Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Can you be honest about those two things? Because if you don't ever want to read your Bible and you don't really want to pray and and you're very unconcerned from week to week except on Sunday mornings about the things of God and your life looks just like everybody else's life around you who doesn't know God, I don't think you love God. I'm sorry. I know that's harsh this morning, but I have to come to that conclusion. If you don't act like you love God, I don't think you love God. And if you don't have a heart for the lost, and if you're not burdened for those who don't know Jesus, if you're not burdened for those who could go into eternity this very day and spend eternity in hell separated from God, if you don't have a burden for them and you don't have a heart for them, well, that probably also means you don't love God. Because God loved them enough that He sent His only begotten Son that whoever among them would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. And so that's the heart of the Father. So church, this morning i got to ask you, do you love God with everything you have and do you love your neighbor as yourself? Answer that honestly. It'll tell you where you are. Because I, I do not want us to be in the Father's house but be far from His heart. I do not want us to be here and say, yes, I go to Rushwood and yes, I listen to Pastor Brent preach and yes, I, I go to a life group and yes, I do all this, but we really don't know Him and we've deceived ourselves. That's my prayer that that doesn't happen. My prayer is that we would all know Him, that we would all be sold out to Him, that we would all put Him as the center of our lives. I heard a good sermon lately, or a summary of a sermon lately. It said, if Jesus was in your family photo, where would He be? Would He be in the center of your family photo, or would He be kind of hanging out on the side and you bring Him in on Sundays? You know, and let him have a little family time. And then, okay, Jesus, back over there for the rest of the rest of the week. We, you, you've had your family time. No, I pray that in my family, Jesus is the center of the photo. I believe he's, I pray that he's the head of the family. I pray that everything we do is centered around him more and more and more. And that's probably a good question for your life. Is he the center of your life? Or is he just on the side? I, I don't think it gets the job done if he's just on the side. I don't think that's salvation. I don't think you're saved if he's just, you know, you give him some sort of lip service every once in a while. I don't, I don't think that's salvation. I think that's cultural Christianity, and I don't think that can save anybody. I think giving your life, putting your life into his hands, following him. I mean, now it's to the point where we've almost used the word Christian so much, it doesn't mean anything. Seventy percent of the people in America say they're Christians, and we know they're not. What's the real percentage? Five, ten percent? But everybody's a Christian. Every music artist gives glory to God. Praise my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ after they win an award. And then they go and they womanize and they smoke pot and they do all this other stuff. But hey, you know, they gave lip service. I don't believe that saves anybody. I believe actually loving God saves you. I believe actually putting your faith in Him and your life in Him. 
That's what saves you. And so I pray that God would make us one. Those that are far off and those that are near, He would bring us all together into one big family. And you know who that's up to? You and me. Let's stand together. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that you would run a CT scan on our heart, a a sanctified, holy CT scan on our heart. And God, I pray that if it is not right, if it does not reflect the heart of the Father, God, I pray you would show us that before it's too late. God, if we're so caught up in worldly things that you are out on the side and basically looking in, God, I pray that you would break into our lives, God. And I pray we would surrender our hearts, the soul, the the very core of who we are to you. God, convict us if we need to. God, I, I pray that I'm not preaching anybody out of their assurance this morning. I'm not even sure if that's possible. But God, if we don't really know you the way that we need to, Lord, I pray that you would just be the hound of heaven and you would be after us. And through your Holy Spirit, you would convict us until our heart is surrendered to you through Jesus Christ and until our heart looks like the heart of the Father. God, until we celebrate when lost sinners come home. God, we throw a party and God, we th- those that may have done us wrong or may have been out in the far country or, and have done you wrong, God, when they come home and they repent, that we would be happy, we would be overjoyed at the sinner that comes home. God, help us not to be in the Father's house but not have the Father's heart. Bring us close to you, we pray. God, help us not to be cultural Christians where we just do it because everybody else does it and we say it because everybody else says it, God. No, I pray that would not be us. I pray we would know you. I pray we would love you and that your love would be spread abroad in our hearts and we would love everybody that we come into contact with. No matter what their situation, no matter what they've gone through, what they've done, God, make us a people that love you and love others. As we leave this place this morning, God, I I pray you'd continue to speak to us. Lord, my words are about to end, but Lord, I pray the words of the Holy Spirit to our hearts would continue on and we would be in conversation all week long. Father, we praise you for your presence. We praise you for your power. We praise you for eternal life that we can have in Jesus Christ. Help us to hold firm to the faith that we have professed, God. Help us not just to have a faith with words, but help us to have a faith that is put into action. We love you, God. We praise you. Thank you for meeting with us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Now, I know you after a sermon like that, you want to run out of here. But do remember that our giving boxes are at the back. Your giving supports the ministry of this church so we can reach more people for Jesus Christ. I do love you, and there's nothing you can do about it. Have a great week. We'll see you Wednesday night.